1: Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, professor of history at Brookdale Community College. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Janet Somerville titled Yours for Probably Always, Martha Gellhorn's Letters of Love and War, 1930 to 1949, published by Firefly Books. Janet Somerville taught literature for 20 years in Toronto, Canada. She is currently working on a young adult novel about Martha Gellhorn, and her memoir, How, Midsummer Night, has been acquired by Open Road Media for publication in April 2024. She's also a frequent contributor to the Toronto Star Book Pages. Janet, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jane. So who is Martha Gellhorn, and how did you get interested in writing about her? Well, two loaded questions.
0: Well, if anybody had an idea of who Martha Gellhorn was, they would probably know her only in relationship to her first husband, Ernest Hemingway, and she was Ernest Hemingway's third of four wives. But um, before Martha Gellhorn met Ernest Hemingway in 1936 at Sloppy Joe's in Key West, Florida, she'd had a life of her own. She was um, somebody who worked for the Federal Emergency Relief Administration for Harry Hopkins, who was Franklin Roosevelt's uh, right-hand man. In 1934, she did that. She had published afterwards a book based on her um, work there called The Trouble I've Seen, which was a a series of uh, four novellas uh, based on the people she had met during that time. She mostly, um, during her work for Fira, covered the eastern seaboard, and she actually got fired, here's a little sidebar from Fira, for inciting a riot among the unemployed in Idaho. She encouraged some of the workers to throw a brick through the relief office window at night so nobody was going to get hurt to get attention. And the FBI um, became interested, and they came and they interviewed the people, and asked, you know, who did this? Who encouraged you to do this? And they said, the relief lady, who was Martha. And so she got fired. And that was fine with her because she wanted to write this book. And so she ended up for a short time moving into the White House with the Roosevelt's. Now, I need to backtrack here. I'm sorry, I've already... Got ahead of myself, but um, Martha actually met the Roosevelts in 1930. Well, they were in Albany because when Franklin was governor there, Eleanor had been friends with Martha's mother, Edna, who was a suffragette. So that's how she first met the Roosevelt's. The Roosevelt's knew that if she was going to get fired from Fira that she would not get another job in government. So they invited her to live in the White House, which she did for a short time, but she didn't like it. Um, and she ended up living in a house another for another short time uh, owned by a, a friend of hers named Freddie Field. And that's where she wrote the book.
1: Interrupt me anytime <laughs> because I know I'm starting to <laughs> get a little we, off track here. You know, so I you have to be passionate about a subject in order to spend years of your life writing and researching about them. So, what was it about Martha that drew you to her?
0: Well, I was actually drawn to Martha quite by accident, and it, I mean, this is, the story itself is insane. How I came to Martha. So, here it is. In 2015, I was visiting New Orleans and I went to Faulkner House Books, which is an independent bookshop there. And I was talking to the bookseller and I said, you know, I'm a pretty literary person. I've read a lot. It's been on your front table here. Can you recommend something you think I've probably never heard of? And she pulled off the shelf this book uh, about the correspondence between Eudora Welty and William Maxwell. And that book is called what there is to say we have said. And it's beautiful. It's about their friendship and it's about gardening and it's about the writing life. And um, I was cavalling about this book on Twitter and a bookseller in Fife, Scotland responded and said, have you ever read The Selected Letters of Martha Gellhorn? And I had not. So I got The Selected Letters of Martha Gellhorn Then I read Caroline Moorhead's biography. Then I read all of the books of Martha's I could find in print and decided I was going to write a novel about Martha that uh, would begin in 1934 with her fear of work and end in 1946 when she wrote a play called Love Ghost Press that opened to standing ovations in the West End of London. And then Paula McLean, I'm not sure if you know who Paula McLean is, but she's a New York Times bestselling novelist. She wrote a book about Ernest Hemingway's first wife, Hadley Richardson, called The Paris Wife. And just as I decided I was going to write this novel, and I'd already started outlining it, had started writing chapters, she announced in the trades, publishing trades that she was writing a novel about Martha and Ernest. So oh, I knew dear. Yeah, so I knew as a first time writer, book writer, that that um, I couldn't compete with Paul McLean. So then I decided I'd have to do something else. And I met in fall 2016, the journalist and historian Adam Hosschild, who was here in Toronto at the Festival of Authors with his book called Spain in Our Hearts, which was about the volunteer Uh, brigades during the spanish civil war and he wrote about martha gellhorn in it and uh, i noticed and i always look at the acknowledgments that he had had access to her restricted papers at boston university and so i asked him could he get me in touch with martha's literary executor And he gave me his card and said, email me in a week when I'm back in California and I'll dig it out for you. So if I hadn't met Adam Hothschild in fall 2016 in Toronto, I would never have been able to get in touch with Sandy Matthews, who is Martha Gellhorn's literary executor and her stepson from her second marriage. I wrote him, said... You know, I was working on this novel and I I wanted to have um, um, make sure that everything was accurate, as accurate as it could be. Would he consider giving me access to her papers? And to my astonishment, he said yes. And it was there that I mixing up the timeline a bit, but it was there I discovered that Paula McLean had had announced this Martha and Ernest book. So I wrote back to Sandy Matthews while I was in Boston and said, these are all the kind of things that I could do. What do you think? And he said, he wrote back and he said, You can you can do what you like. Just let me know what it is. And so that's how I ended up um, writing this nonfiction book and framing it from 1930 to 1949, because 1949 was a good place to stop, because that's when Martha adopted as a single parent. Her son from an Italian orphanage um, after after the end of the war,
1: right? And I, you know, it's it's very interesting that she adopts that child after World War II because there were so many refugees and so many orphan children, and that was something that Eleanor Roosevelt was very concerned about as well.
0: That's right, and and she actually had Eleanor's support, and she actually had Eleanor write a letter. Um, to the orphanage, uh, basically vouching for her as a, as a stable person who would be a good parent, because also at the time, single women were not considered eligible to do this. Right?
1: No, it was very unusual. So, and it's very interesting how she comes to motherhood at that point at, in her life, because she. You know, she certainly could have had children earlier in her her life, and she chose not to. She Um, chose not to, and she really loved Ernest's sons. Um, And
0: she was sort of in local parentis sometimes with those boys, especially with Patrick and with Gregory, his two younger boys. Um, When they lived together at the Finca, which um, they had uh, from 1939 till they divorced in in forty five. Those boys were with them a lot, like for for weeks and months at a time. And Martha was in particular very close to Patrick, whose nickname was Mouse, um, the middle son. And and she and and those boys remained friends for the rest of of her life. Um, I found some really beautiful, warm hearted, funny letters, especially from Patrick. Um, to martha you know patrick in his sort of in his his 50s writing writing to martha she spent you know a lot of their formative years with with those boys
1: it's so, nice that she was able to maintain a, a a nice relationship with the boys especially since she does not have an amicable divorce and you know well, so sometimes that's the you know that's sometimes the fallout that you don't remain close to the other members of the family if you don't have a you know, if it ends badly,
0: but it also didn't really end that badly, which is which was something that I discovered in the letters too. And maybe this is a good time just for me to read this little excerpt sure. of this letter that that Martha wrote to Ernest in August of 1945. And um, they they had agreed to divorce by this point. And um, what's extraordinary to me in this letter is the lack of malice and also her generosity because um the finca via just outside of havana cuba where they spent most of their time together was their marital home and she walked away without her share of it she gave her share of that home to him and mary welsh his fourth and final wife and didn't expect any alimony she she just walked away from the marriage with a few of her personal items that she lists in in this letter too i'm not going to read that part but i but i wanted to read this because i think it's misunderstood um, the way things ended and that was a surprise to me in my research so this was august 13th, 1945 And and Martha and Ernest had um, all kinds of nicknames for each other, and uh, one of them is Bug, B-U-G. So this is is what she says. My dear Bug, I may not have been the best wife you ever had, but at any rate, I am surely the least expensive, don't you think? That's some virtue. As for the rest, whatever I had a share in, I did know it was lovely. Do you remember what a stinker this house was? I give it to you as a wedding present and hope you are always happy there and that this marriage to Mary Welsh is everything you have been looking for and everything you needed. And I hope you go on writing wonderful books there. And if you do, the Finkel will one day become a national monument and be tended by a grateful and admiring government. In the meantime, it makes a fine place for Mousie to paint. I think often of the colors and the African view over the hills and the palm trees and think he must be doing lovely things. It is a sorrow not to see Bambi, not to see Mousy's work, not to hear Giggy. I really expect I will never see any of them again. However, I think I have learned all there is to know about amputations. One has to learn all the time, doesn't one? I never want to learn again. It seems to me a terribly enduring kind of knowledge. Take care of yourself and good luck. Love, Mook. So to me, that's not a letter of acrimony. uh, But
1: she burns his letters. So, you know, that's Ah, that's my big question. She doesn't, she doesn't. That, okay. that was
0: that was the common in, oh i've got so much to tell you <laughs> that, that was a commonly uh, thought of um narrative and it's not true um and this was a and i assumed that it was true because that's what we've always been told and it's not true because what happened and this is another sidebar but Valerie Hemingway, who was married to Giggy Gregory, Ernest's youngest son, before she was married to him, she was Ernest's final sort of personal assistant in 1959-1960. She, she met him and Mary in Madrid. They really liked her. She was an Irish journalist. He ended up hiring her. And when Ernest killed himself, Valerie, who was then Valerie Danby Smith went with mary welsh to cuba to bring out all of the papers they got permission from castro to go to the finca and to bring out any personal papers uh, that were there and so valerie went with mary welsh and they stuffed paper shopping bags full of manuscripts and letters and personal diaries and all of that kind of thing. And they schlepped it back home to New York City. And Valerie spent two years at Scribner on Fifth Avenue in New York, because Scribner was Ernest's publisher, sorting all of this stuff out. And when Mary Welsh decided to make the gift of Ernest's papers to the Kennedy Library, all of that stuff went there. And when I went looking at the Kennedy Library and the Inner Seminary papers for anything to or from Martha Gellhorn, there had been a restriction until after Martha's death on her correspondence that was kept there, a restriction that Mary Welsh had put on these, these letters. And until I went to look and to ask, nobody had bothered to ask. So there were these letters that even her biographer, Caroline Moorhead, didn't even know about. And they wouldn't have been there without Valerie Hemingway. My point back to Valerie Hemingway is um, Mary Walsh wanted to leave anything connected to Martha Gellhorn at the Finca in Cuba. And Valerie didn't agree with that and and put things, took all of Martha's stuff um, along with her. I've since... um, corresponded many times with Valerie we are we are uh, consistent letter writers to each other and she's told me all kinds of things um, about Martha she's read the book and she said she thought that it really it reminded her of the time that she knew Martha and how entirely singular Martha was and all that anyway my point is without Valerie Hemingway schlepping those letters out of Cuba those Martha Gellhorn letters wouldn't exist so no, she didn't burn all of her letters from Ernest. Her step um her adopted son, also a sandy, uh, said he saw her burning them. And so that's kind of apocryphal now, since the letters actually ex- exist, maybe not all of them, but all of the letters that he kept, and he kept everything right he was he was a pack rat he he kept um. He kept everything, which is wonderful that he kept everything.
1: So, but can Martha, you speak a little to the the structure of the book because it's a little bit on it's a little bit unusual. So, I think it would be really fun for listeners who are interested in the book to know what to what they're gonna what they're gonna find when they open oh, it.
0: Well, so there there are pockets of it's it's really structured like a biography. There are pockets of narrative that I've written to connect the letters and the letters appear in chronological order, not that I found them in chronological order. Um, So where there may be gaps um, in the letters, I've inserted the narrative to make sense of the actual story that the letters tell themselves. Does that make sense?
1: Yes, absolutely. I I think it's a really, the, the structure is very interesting and there's the analysis, the historian's narration, and then you get the document. Right. And I particularly enjoyed that structure. And I have been, as a historian, working with letters. I have my students work with letters so that they get the experience as well. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what we can learn from letters, and how do personal letters like Gelhorn's give us access to the past?
0: Well, Gelhorn's letters are extraordinary, I think, in that capacity, because she was also a war correspondent. And the people that she, I mean, <laughs> how many people could have counted Eleanor Roosevelt as a friend, right? So the letters that she's writing to Eleanor Roosevelt that are included in this book, for example, um, to me, also gesture towards the kind of American foreign policy she wants to see put in place. Right? She wa- she is, Galhorn is easily outraged by what she sees, and and is unafraid to articulate that outrage with specific examples. You know, um, he- here's this here's a little um, excerpt actually from October 1938. She was in Prague. And this is a letter to Eleanor, and this is just one paragraph in this letter, but it it speaks to what's happening in Prague, but it also shows you the timelessness of Gelhorn's words. I am so angry and so disgusted that I feel a little dazed. I hate cowardice and I hate brutality and I hate lies. And this is what we see all the time, all over the place. And of these three, maybe the lies are worst. Now Hitler has set the standard for the world, and truth is rarer than radium." So she's not not writing letters um, telling about sort of the ordinariness of her day her letters are very politically charged. And part of that is that Martha always looked when others looked away. She was unafraid to do that. And she felt that that as, because of the privilege in which she was raised, she felt it was her duty to show other people in the world what was happening without a filter. You know, and I think that's what made her a terrific uh, war correspondent, too. I mean, the first piece that she filed by Explosive for Everyone was about Madrid in 1937. I mean, she didn't go there to become a war correspondent. She went there in solidarity with the Spanish who were standing up um, against Hitler via Franco. And she just wanted to be there as an act of solidarity and while she was there uh, she ended up writing about madrid and colliers which had a subscription of three million weekly at the time um published that piece and put her on the masthead as as a war correspondent and that began her career that led her you know she was at the liberation of dachau in may 1945 and her, her writing about that is just extraordinary and she said in a late-in-life interview when she was in her 80s that it was as if she fell over a cliff and never recovered with, with what she witnessed at, at Dachau. And um, in, the, in my book, there's actually a, a copy of her access pass for that day. She was only allowed there for two hours. But um, if you look up the piece that she wrote um, about Dachau, and it's a an, it's a shocking piece, and it's an important piece um, too. I, I think you know one of the things that sticks with me about it is she she talks about um, visiting some just a local vis- villager there and having them shake the dust out of the curtains in their front room. Well, that dust is actually the incinerated ashes from Dhaka. Mm. right? So she takes something ordinary, those drapes, heavy drapes in the front room that all of her American readers back home can relate to, and she shows the atrocity in in that one observation. And she does that time and time again, not only in her, her journalism, but also in her letters. Like her, her letters um, do not have a filter. And I think um that's why they're so valuable there's no filter
1: yeah there's they're very honest i mean they're very honest and they're very modern um i feel felt like i could hear her voice through the when i was reading those letters absolutely very clear and she's very funny she's got a great sense of humor and charm and charm. And she used that. Of course, she used that. But,
0: you know, one of the things she said, too, as she aged, um, was that what she really missed most was the laughter in her life, the laughter among the comrades, you know, the comrades, meaning her, her fellow journalists. I mean, that's why she loved to go to these places and, and write these stories, not only because she wanted the world. She called it, she said, you know, I, I want to make my tiny squeaking noise about the wrongness of things and hope that people paid attention to that Her tiny squeaking noise about the wrongness of things. And she did that her entire life, you know, sort of not only during, you know, the Spanish Civil War and the Second World War and the war in Vietnam, but her final piece that she wrote, she filed when she was 86 years old and she had gone to write about the murdered street youth of Salvador, Brazil. Nobody was writing about the murdered street youth of Salvador, Brazil, and 86-year-old Martha Gellhorn went down there and got the story and Mm. wrote about it. She was always interested in writing about the most disenfranchised among us and figuring that if she couldn't do anything per se, she could at least remember four people.
1: And again, I loved she, in the. Uh, I loved in that. the, in the um, book. She says she wants to go everywhere and do everything, and sometimes
0: write about it. <laughs> I, that's what she said. I want to go everywhere and do everything, and sometimes write about it. So what do you think? Where did that spirit
1: come from? You think?
0: I think it was just in her. She was also raised in a very progressive family. She was the only daughter. She had three brothers. And her parents treated her just like her brothers at a time. You know, she was born in 1908 in St. Louis. And at a time, you know, when women and young girls uh, were not treated with any kind of equality. But her father, George, who was an obstetrician gynecologist and also um treated a lot of poor patients who could not pay for their care, often poor Black patients. Um, the Galhorns were one of the few families, I think, in St. Louis at the time who, who would have Black guests at their dinner table. So Martha had this kind of worldly upbringing, not in a precious way, but... Um, and And she was... She she grew up believing that she could do whatever she wanted to do, just as her brothers could do whatever they wanted to do. And her mother was a suffragette, and she was part of the League of Women Voters and helped get votes for women. Um,
1: so she had a really special relationship with her mother.
0: Uh, her mother was an ex- uh, her mother was an extraordinary person. You know, there's some really beautiful letters between Ernest and Edna Gilhorn too, long after Ernest and Martha. Divorced and and he loved Edna more than he loved his own mother with whom he had a very complicated relationship. And Edna and Martha and Ernest often traveled together. You know, when when they were a couple, Edna was often doing things with them. Like she'd come down to Cuba or they'd go on road trips. And um they were very fond of each other. And for Martha, her mother was. Her compass. She was her true north. And she felt all her life that she could never be as fine a person as as her mother was. And any of the reading I've done about Edna Gellhorn, everybody says the same thing. Like she was just an extraordinarily kind, thoughtful, generous, intelligent, loving person who made everyone who met her feel welcome. So how and Martha, was, Mar- not like yeah. <laughs> Martha <laughs> was not like that. Martha was <laughs> not like that.
1: So what do you think her experience, do you think that her experience going to Bryn Mawr may have also given her the uh, confidence to embark on a journalist career, a career as a writer and a journalist?
0: Uh, well, it certainly was the impetus for it because she quit. She left Bryn Mawr after her junior year. She never finished her degree because she decided that any degree she would receive would only qualify her for work that she didn't want to do. So by leaving Bryn Mawr in 1929, um, she set out on her own, right? She, she had decided that she wanted to become a foreign correspondent, And she got experience first with the Albany Times Union, where she was writing about streetcar crashes and the mortuary beat. And then she went to Paris and uh, got all kinds of sort of um, jobs there. Like she was, she worked in a hair salon at one point, you know, just sweeping up hair clipping. She worked for um a news agency she she did all kinds of sort of menial jobs um, in paris just to sort of pay her way because this is the other thing about martha she even though she was raised in an upper middle class family she never expected to have her way paid for her she always wanted to earn her own money and so she was fine earning sort of $25 Twenty five dollars at a stretch that would take her, you know, she could live on for two months. Twenty five dollars in Paris in nineteen thirty, you know. She she never thought about not doing something she wanted to do. If, if you want to do something, then you go do it, and you don't complain about it. You just find a way to do it, and and that served her well too during the war. When maybe I should tell this story too, the D Day story where. Ernest stole her accreditation. By 1944, their marriage was fracturing. She was away a lot. She was reporting on the war for Colliers. um, And she wrote long, loving letters to him when she was uh, working on the front from Finland, from London. And and, um, she kept goading him to come and join her to write about the war. And he decided in May 1944 that that's what he would do. So he went to New York and he went to Collier's, to Charles Colbaugh, who was the the editor there, and said, I'm your man. And at the time, magazines could only send one accredited correspondent. So Ernest, who was world famous by this point as a writer, um, ended up taking Martha's accreditation. And so she was... And it's so insane. So Roald Dahl, who wrote James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, was the British attaché in Washington. And Martha put Ernest in touch with Roald Dahl to get him a flight to England in May of 1944. And then she said, since you've taken my papers, can I get a seat on that plane too? And Ernest was furious with her at this point and said, no, no women allowed. And he and Roald Dahl flew Flew to England. Martha ended up getting passage on a Norwegian munition ship, the only civilian, the only woman sailing out of New York to Liverpool. And when she got to Liverpool at the end of May 1944, uh, she was greeted there by somebody who said, Mrs. Hemingway, your husband's been in a car crash. And she went to the hospital and there he was and sitting on the his bed was mary welsh She was the time life correspondent the woman who'd become his fourth wife hmm. so martha didn't have any papers for d-day and she ended up just talking her way aboard a red cross hospital ship at southampton saying she was going to write a story about the nurses nobody cared it was a women's story no threat And it turned out that she ended up being the only correspondent and the only woman to be on the beaches uh, of Normandy helping to evacuate the wounded on D-Day Plus One. And Ernest wasn't allowed on shore, even though he had his papers. And um, he never forgave her for that.
1: Mm. You know, I was interested in her. You know, she's got a very interesting body of work. And she worked on, of course, Journalism, but she also wrote fiction. She did, yeah. And so I was really interested when I was reading um through the book. The it seemed to me, and I really would love your comment on this. It seemed to me when I was reading it that the journalism came easier to her than the fiction. I think and, that's true. That that it was really a it was struggle for her, and I kept talking to her while I was reading her letter, saying write the journalism that's <laughs> she was that's so funny, talented she was, bad. <laughs> you know
0: what she was so talented at journalism and i think um for me a lot of the fiction feels forced because she wasn't any good at making things up um the novel of hers that i think still works well is a stricken field which is the one about the german jewish refugee crisis in prague in 1938 and because the protagonist in that is really a cipher for martha herself she's very believable and um and also the point of no return which is her novel about dachau um
1: is that one that she didn't have
0: she wouldn't have reprinted or... no the one that she didn't want reprinted was um what mad pursuit which was published in 1934 it was her first novel and basically it's a coming of age uh it's a coming of age story okay. and really it's kind of like her Bryn Mawr self with some fictional stuff added to it i actually the only copy i could find of that was at the british museum in london and i spent two days there in rare books and music reading it page page by page and um, yeah, she called it the baby novel I deny and never list so
1: yeah so. It, it's uh so you know she just is um, not famous enough with people for the enormous contribution she made and the body right. that she created in my opinion
0: my opinion too and and one of the things i'm proud about this book for is the outreach that it's been able to create two new generations of of uh, readers you know she did so she her career was monumental i think and and so few people know who she was or even what she did and I think this, you know, this book is kind of a beginning um to to introduce her to a new generation of of readers. And
1: there's still people alive who knew Martha. Yeah. You know? And and you know, and, and she's really important in the story of women in journalism. And well, she, you know You know,
0: there's so Christiana Amenpore wouldn't have a job without Martha gellhorn before her. Diane Sawyer wouldn't, you know, like. These titans in women's journalism uh, wouldn't be doing what they're doing with, without Martha Gellhorn and Virginia Cowles and Lee Miller, like all of these women of the 1930s and 40s who were intrepid and, to me, fearless in their search for story and meaning. You know, Martha always wanted to write about when she was doing her war correspondence, write about ordinary people, ordinary people in extraordinary times.
1: And... Yeah, you know, I wanted to ask you about uh, her sexual liberation and her relationships with different men are very frankly discussed in in her letters and in your narration. So I was wondering, would you talk a little bit about her romantic life Sure. She
0: her first true love was a French socialist named Bertrand de Juvenel. And Bertrand was married when Martha met him um, in 1930 in Paris, in July 1930 in Paris. Though he and his wife were sort of estranged. Bertrand, um, for some people, he his father, Henri de Juvenel, was actually married to Colette, the great French novelist. And Bertrand actually, I mean, this is going to sound so French, lost his virginity to his stepmother. And Martha got involved with Bertrand. And and I think actually of all of the men in her life who were involved with her romantically, he's the one who understood her the most. And um, the letters of his that I was able to include in the book, I, I think, really show that he really understood her intellectually and uh, emotionally. And much later in life, when they were in their seventies, um, they took a cruise together with his daughter in France. You know, she—the title of the book, yours, for probably always, comes from a letter that she wrote to her friend Cam Beckett, but it's actually a phrase that applies to most of the relationships in Martha's life. So Bertrand was one of them.
1: And, um, that's what I wanted to ask you as a follow-up about the, the, how that relates to the title.
0: Yeah. And so there's Bertrand there's, I think, I think he was her truest. I honestly think he was her truest love after Ernest um, and she always said that you know later she was she was snarky about Ernest and saying things like you know her memories of sex with Ernest that was it was that it was short and sharp and she just wished it would be over soon. But uh, the only true physical passion of her life was with James Gavin, General James Gavin, who at thirty six was the youngest general in the U.S. Armed Forces. He was in charge of the storied eighty second Airborne Division. And when he and Martha, he and Martha were friends and Ernest was friends with, with James Gavin too, long before they, James and, and Martha were an item. But um, I only included some of his letters because there are hundreds of love letters from James Gavin and Martha's papers, like hundreds of them. He was so doting and he actually threw over Marlena Dietrich to be with Martha. And here's a little sidebar. I, I ended up talking to Patrick Hemingway because he had a book out called Dear Papa. I never thought I'd get to talk to Patrick Hemingway. So anyway, Patrick Hemingway is 93 years old. And we were talking about his childhood and Martha and all of that and James Gavin. And, and I said, well, you remember James Gavin, you know, he dumped Marlene Dietrich for Martha." And Patrick just said to me, oh, I can see that. Right? <laughs> i can see that dump marlena dietrich for for
1: martha anyway um well she was very pretty and and you know she was very dynamic and had such spirit right and she was just like fun one of the guys right yeah there was she was like you know and she was like game for anything like she would nothing precious about Martha. right and i think that's because she was raised with three brothers Right. right yes right. she and the letters with her brother the the letters that you have alfred in- yeah. yeah i love those yeah
0: they were such good friends and in their 80s they traveled together because everybody else had died that she was close to and and um she and alfred would take trips together like they took a trip to egypt i think when maybe she was 85 or 86 and so he was five years younger and um, they always loved each other, Martha and and Alfred. And and you
1: you include letters about when she terminates her pregnancy, right? Uh, and uh, well, there's more. And than I was wondering. If, I was wondering about your decision to include that. Well,
0: look where we are. I know. I it's so. You it's know, so terrifying, right? That yeah. that. You know, women's agency over their own bodies is still a question in twenty twenty three in a so called civilized society. It's just shocking. It it's truly shocking. So, you know, it was no secret that Martha had abortions. She, I mean, she writes so frankly to Bertrand, right, about both of her pregnancies that she terminates and. Um I also included and I don't know, did you get the hardcover or the soft cover? No, I have the uh the paperback. Okay, because I, I don't know if they did they include the story Requiem at the back of that? Because that's a story she wrote about having an abortion, a story that was never published before it it um I included it in my book. And um Sandy Matthews, who's her executor, I I mean I sent Sandy, Sandy wrote the introduction, the foreword to the book, so um, he knew about the story when I told him I found it and sent it to him. I, I just think it's important, you know, um, that, that women have agency. And yeah for her to be so is... frank about it at a yes. time when nobody was frank about it, it, Absolutely. it, it it's also part of her
1: strength of character. Yes. I think it's time that those of us who are working on women's history and women's biography, tell the whole story, tell what it's really like to be a woman and and not to whitewash those things that, you know, you know, she engaged in, you know, taking complete control of her life. And she did. And and there
0: was there was no uh, poor me about it either. She was she was a very pragmatic person. Uh, and not just in that aspect of her life, but she was just a very pragmatic person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I just, you know, I... I uh, and I want to say one more thing about sure. romance. Romance, Because when she was, and I can't remember if this makes it into sort of the little afterward that I write uh, at the end of the book, but when she was in her late 60s, she ended up um, having an affair with Lawrence Rockefeller And they ended up having, he never left his wife. She never wanted him to leave his wife, but they'd see each other, you know, two or three times a year over 15 years. And he was one of the people uh, who was actually at her wake in her flat in London. And I've listened to this little uh, cassette tape of that talking about their times together and she um considered that one of the real joys of her life her affair with with him because whenever they got together it was just full of goodness and laughter and fun you know so and she was never somebody who who was really meant to be married. I mean, she never really wanted to marry Ernest. She married Ernest because he desperately wanted to be married to her. She would have happily lived with him, you know, without marriage. Yeah. And in fact, Edna, her mother, encouraged her to do that, to not marry Ernest, just to live with her. Which, when you think about that, that's 1939, these are pro- really progressive ideas, for oh, not you think.
1: Absolutely, it's amazing when you're when you read this book, and I hope everyone who's listening to this will will get a copy and read it because you will be amazed at how ahead of her time she was and how progressive she was, and how much of a what we would you know consider feminist. Uh, and that she, she would was. never consider herself
0: a feminist. You know, right. She thought she thought that was a load of hooey. Yeah. She she just wanted to do what she wanted to do. Yeah. Right? And,
1: right.
0: And um and didn't expect any special treatment ever.
1: So that's mm-hmm.
0: that's interesting too to me. Right.
1: Right. You know. Well, I think yeah, it's a it's a terrific book. And I and I, I thank you so much for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. I loved reading it. And I hope everyone will take a look at your book called Yours for Probably Always, Martha Gellhorn's Letters of Love and War, 1930 to 1949, published by Firefly Books. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semecka. Keep reading.